Let me introduce you. Let me introduce you. All right, y'all. Welcome to episode six of Let Me Introduce You. Yay. Who are these people who are talking to you? Well, if you've been following us, we are three best friends. Been friends for nearly 20 years. We went to film school together and we have so much in common. Like it's almost silly, except our taste in film is, is wildly different. So every week... We pick a film that at least one other person has not seen, and we subject, I mean, introduce the other people (laughs) to it, and then we come together and discuss our reactions to it. So these dulcet tones that you are hearing in my voice are coming from Ashley. And these also dulcet mm, (laughs) tones are coming from Graham and my drink today to celebrate the first episode after we launched officially on on all of our podcast the podcast world Yay. is a vodka soda. And my name is Katie, and my less dulcet but natural speaking sounds are beautiful. Are brought to you by Bud Light Lime <laughs> because it reminds me of the Jersey Shore and it's delicious. <laughs> is it? Does it taste like? Does, is it a little bit woodery? I'm not gonna say. Tastes like water. Tastes like water. I'm not going to say. You're gonna need a cup of coffee. Yes, yes, it does. A little bit of water to my coffee, you know. (laughs) Ew. It's too strong. I need some water. Need some water. I love you so much. My celebratory cocktail is a. It's not a cocktail at all. It is a cranberry citrus sparkling water from Good and Gather because I am. It's a mocktail. Yes, I am ride or die for Target. No, I am not pregnant. Damn it. A fiance and looking for a house is enough. I don't need to have children. I just like it. Oh, God. What, that would be too much if you just added one more thing. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> okay. So the theme for this week is spooky, scary. And this week's movie is 1990s Night of the Living Dead. It is a remake. Hey, Graham, how much of this, how much did this film earn? I'm so glad you asked. This film <laughs> earned $5.8 million at the domestic box office after opening in October of 1990. Mm. The same weekend as Quigley Down Under. Thank you very much. Mm. So one of my favorite things what? about Graham, like throughout our friendship, is that he has this amazing memory for knowing how much films make. Like, yes, you could think like, okay, whatever, Ashley, it's a podcast. Like he could just look it up. No, legit. For the last 20 years, I have been delighted by his like photographic memory of knowing box office. It's, it's simply amazing. So first of all, Yes, we have tested this theory in person for nearly 20 years by coming up with the most random shit and being like, Graham, how about this one? But I think, is it is it photographic or is it eidetic memory? Because I think... What's eidetic? Yeah. What? So Resident I think smart photo- person. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> well, I, I only know it because Batgirl has an eidetic memory. Dork. Uh, so Nerd. I know. It's my job. <laughs> my job to know these things so photographic i think is a misnomer and eidetic is more like you can recall specific it's not just like you take a picture and you see it in your head it's recalling specific data and yeah. moments in time i think eidetic is the accurate name for that but i'll take it yeah, yeah. it sounds fancier it sounds, so. sounds great i it's mm. on my resume <laughs> graham you're such an idet is that I'm an i wonder idet. if that's what <laughs> there you go we call themselves my dicks. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I can call Well, I mean, that. some people Your have the is. ability to understand you know, baseball stats, car stats, and whatever. This is just my thing. I, had, I, didn't, start? I started, oh my God, I'm so glad you asked. I started in 1995. The weekend that. It's very specific. The, yes. The weekend that Showgirls came out in theaters. <laughs> I, I was just talking about how I good was, Showgirls actually is. Okay. Showgirls. I've never seen it, but I was oh trying to listen god. to it. Oh my god, we list. gotta add it. On a list. I was so fascinated by it because I knew that it was like the first NC-17 movie that ever was wide released. I was a very, you know, well-versed in film 12-year-old. And I was <laughs> just, I was fascinated following its, this just like massive flop, its trajectory in the box office. So I would 
look at data every Friday in the newspaper and just like write it down and memorize it. So it started from from that point. So I actually, as I've mentioned before, I don't have the greatest memory anymore for a variety of reasons. And so when you two were just like creating these huge, amazing lists, I was like, what am I going to pick? And at first I was just picking stuff that y'all had seen. And so for this one, I really wanted to find something that neither of you had seen and since it's like spooky scary I really I I struggled to trying to pick this and then I was so excited when neither of you had seen this version but Katie you've seen the 1968 version is that correct yes okay yes. so I hadn't seen it in forever and I am so excited to talk about this movie because I have so much to say oh my God. yeah I have I have a lot of of things but yeah so I'd seen the 1968 original like years ago but honestly, a lot of the Romero Russo Night of the Living Dead or Living Dead series is kind of a blind spot for me. I've seen bits and pieces of different things. I know the difference between, you know, Romero zombies and Russo zombies and kind of where that split happened. But I haven't seen, I think I've seen Day of the Dead maybe once. I love Return of the Living Dead. Return of the Living Dead has, like, one of the best frigging zombies ever. (laughs) But my viewing of the Living Dead franchise as a whole is a little spotty. So I was super excited when you mentioned this one because I was like, no, I haven't seen this, and I'm just pumped to talk about it. So for the not-as-informed people either talking right now or listening along with us, Russo who? Russo what? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I don't know who Russo is. I know who Romero is, but not Russo. Okay, so George Romero and John A. Russo co-wrote this film. Or, or, excuse me. The 68 one, right? Co-wrote the 68 one, and this 1990 version is based on that original screenplay, although this 1990 version screenplay was written by Romero. So Russo and Romero started Night of the Living Dead in 1968. They co-wrote this, kind of changed what we know of as zombies today for that it was white zombie and zombies were kind of just like more of a voodoo thing yeah they're really like zombies are actually rooted in like haitian folklore yeah yeah and like a lot of it had gotten away from that so Mm -hmm. so when you think of zombies you think of usually two things you think of like the slow brain looking for social commentary kind of zombies and that's Romero when you think of if there are fast zombies like the zombies in 28 days later or in return of the living dead those are Russo zombies so Romero and Russo they they started with night of the living dead in 1968 and then they they split in where their ideas of what zombies should be and oddly enough and Ashley if you want to talk about any of this or if I'm overstepping, please let me know. No, this is actually a ploy to just get you to do my work. <laughs> this is a busy week, guys. I got engaged. I'm looking for a house or a duplex. I just need you to do the heavy lifting, all right? It's fine. I'm just I'm only gonna mention getting engaged like six more times and okay. then I'll get over it. It's just it's I'm so excited. new. Very it's excited. new. Graham, let's take a sip. Let's take We're a taking a sip. A, all of us take an a alcohol sip. sip. I say, everyone take a break. Let's take a collective. Yeah, there we go. So Romero and Russo made the Night of the Living Dead in 1968, and then due to some messed up copyright laws where they didn't actually really copyright their idea of what a zombie was from that movie. That's why we have all the zombie movies we have today, because the idea of zombies moving slow or looking for brains or that you can only kill them by shooting them in the head, that all came from the original Night of the Living Dead. But due to some copyright screw-ups... It, Romero and Russo didn't copyright it. So that's why we have the vast genre of zombies we do today. And this is why intellectual property is so important. Hire a good <laughs> lawyer, protect your ideas so that other people don't profit off it, unless you want other people to profit off it. I remember that in film school. I remember them talking about how like the cheapest way for you to copyright something was to... I think this was when we were all in that same screenwriting class with What's-His-Name who wrote Slaughterhouse Five? Slaughterhouse Five, oh, and his wife, and like they who were believed in aliens. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes, oh and God. then like she talked about how. So we were in college when the Red Sox finally won the World Series again, and in like one of our classes, she went in. She or he, we couldn't even remember because they were like this married couple who were super into film, and she went into how 
Kurt Schilling offered a blood sacrifice when his ankle Geller, the Geller. Geller. Oh yes, my God. The Geller, Stephen <laughs> Geller. So and he, it was like a blood sacrifice, and, and that's wife. why they won the World Series finally. It was wild. <laughs> Cheapest way, first off, don't talk about your ideas because somebody steals it. Write them. Don't talk about them. And then the cheapest way to copyright like a screenplay or something is to send yourself a copy through registered mail and never open it. So it's unsealed. has like United States Post Office and all of that. So I don't know. So yeah, so I, I was like super psyched to pick something that you hadn't seen. And when I say pick something, I mean Bob, my fiance, was like, hey, why don't you do... The 1990 version of Night of the Living Dead. It's like, because, you know, Barbara's like really kick ass in that. And this is also how I know I'm turning him into more and more of a feminist is that he's noticing these things and then mentioning them to me. Good job. Also, she's a redhead. What up? Redhead representation. And then as I got further into the research about this film, I realized it was kind of one of those accidentally picked something really great and didn't realize it. Kind of like how... Romero in the original cast, I mean, Jones as Ben, but he didn't explicitly previously, like Ben had no specific like racial identity in the screenplay. Yeah, it wasn't and then, a character written for a, a black man or a white man. It was just a man. And then it becomes this commentary on race relations in the United States. And so as I'm diving into it more, I'm realizing like, oh shit, This is, like, always prescient, but especially now, like, we're in such a huge civil rights movement akin to what was happening in 68 when the original came out. And then I was thinking more, Katie, we were actually talking on the phone this week where I was like, I think I could get really into horror for, like, horror as social commentary. Yeah, I think, like, the last few years I've really, I've really used TV and movies and art in general as escapism, but watching this really makes me want to dive more into art as a way to cope and understand our current circumstances. Before we do that, Katie, you are our resident special effects horror expert. And sometimes you talk about stuff and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that means. (laughs) So can you give us a quick primer? Like when you say stuff like practical special effects, like I didn't know what that meant. Yes. So Tom Savini this Who, is his, his directorial debut. De, debut. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. Again. His what? His what? Actually? It's a debut. It's not a debut. Debut. Tom Savini's directorial debut. Tom Savini, a renowned special effects makeup artist. Sorry, Katie, the, go ahead. The Sultan of Slaughter <gasps> is his nickname. So Tom Savini is one of the grand masters of practical special effects. When I say practical special effects versus video or um, other types of special effects, practical special effects are things that are like makeup, prosthetics. It doesn't include like in-camera effects or it doesn't include editing effects, but it's basically makeup or stop motion animation. So when I say practical special effects, I'm usually referring to makeup or I'm referring to stop motion animation. So for this, of course, we're going to talk a little bit about the makeup special effects. And I love to talk about, so Tom Savini's two inspirations are also similar to my inspirations. Hmm. Lon Chaney Sr., who was in a lot of early silent films. He was in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was in The Phantom. He was in The Unknown, which I'm going to make you two watch. (laughs) It's on our list of stuff to talk about. But he did all of his own makeup. He's known as the man of a thousand faces. The other, the godfather of special effects makeup is Dick Smith, who when he passed away, they forgot to mention in the Oscar in memoriam, and I'm still butthurt about it. You are still but, upset, yeah. and I rightly am. so. They always make mistakes with that. I know, yeah. but he's responsible for The Exorcist. Wow, so and they didn't include the... him, and he's responsible no. for The Exorcist. Damn. Mm-hmm. Slap yeah, the so face. Dick Smith is the master. So now Tom Savini is brilliant in this. He's known for his work with Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. He was supposed to be involved... Yeah. 
all the, all the deaths. He was supposed to be involved in the original, but he was in Vietnam as a war photographer at the time in 1968, mm. so he couldn't be involved with the original. He met Romero on an earlier audition. He wound up working with Romero on a film called Martin, but Tom Savini's done, yeah, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creep Show. But his big, big, big thing is he created Jason Voorhees for Friday the 13th, Part 1, and he killed Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th, Part 4. Got it. Very good. A very, very important career. He also yeah. killed Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th, Part through, 1 with the arrow the through the yeah. neck, which mm-hmm. just freaked me out. Also, the first time I watched that, did not see the ending coming, where Jason Voorhees pops up out of the water, and I went, blah! Yeah. I'm so scared. <laughs> Bob loves to tease me about that. It's pretty great. But yeah, so so Tom Savini currently runs a special effects program in Pennsylvania, which I have ogled, but never taken myself. I think you guys know this. I did work in special effects. I worked for a shop called Monster in My Closet, run by the wonderful Jeremy Selfran, who introduced me to all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies in two days. We back-to-back them. So we were sculpting for something, and he had me watch all of them. But a quick plug for him, if, if you guys are able to watch this show called Evil... It's on Netflix right now, and he did the special effects makeup for that. But it's funny, too, because, you know, when we started watching Night of the Living Dead, this version, there are two credits that I was surprised by. So it says the special effects are created by John Bullich and Everett Burrell, which I was kind of like, who are these guys? Very surprised to learn that they are both connected to Babylon 5, which the lead actress in this movie... Patricia Tallman is known for Babylon 5. Oh. John Bullich. Good. You were just doing all my work for me. I love it. I know. I love it. I can't help it. I'm sorry. I love it. I'm just like, yep, this is my plan all along. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I can't help it. Uh, No, I love it. I love it. John Bullich did Ghoulies. He did Lost Boys. He did the Buffy TV show. Ooh, Buffy. He did X-Files. And then Everett Burrell did Pan's Labyrinth, Babylon 5, and he's doing Umbrella Academy. Mm, the Umbrella Academy is good. Enjoy it. Well, this is really good. <laughs> so much good information. And here we are just rattling things off. But if you've never seen the original or the remake of Night of the Living Dead, you're still like, so zombies? But like, what else? So, Graham, can you give us a, like a, just a quick synopsis, a summary of the film? Sure. So we begin with siblings Barbara and Johnny. Johnny. Um, visiting their mother's grave in, in broad daylight. And while they're there, the brother's teasing his sister for being scared of being in a cemetery. And suddenly this man just starts kind of walking towards them slowly. And they're like, get away from us. Get away. And then suddenly the man attacks them. And in the ensuing scuffle, Johnny falls over and is killed by hitting his head on a tombstone. And then Barbara realizes that there's other, these like slow moving men coming towards her. And in her attempt to escape, she crashes their car. And from there, she runs to a house to see if anyone can help her. And in there, there's more of these zombies who are coming after her. And in that moment, this man comes in. Tony? Todd? Ben. Yes! Ben. Tony Todd the actor. Tony Todd is the actor. <laughs> Tony Todd the actor of Candyman yeah, fame. Yeah. So yes. this man, Ben, comes ben. in and he's like, something is happening. You've got to, we have to defend ourselves. We have to be prepared. So we, I don't know what's going on, but there's there's something crazy happening down there. So they, they begin to you know, find guns in the house to help protect themselves. And then we discover that there are more humans that are in the basement. These two teenagers and this kind of more wealthier family, this man and woman and their daughter who's been bit by, bit by one of these creatures and is not feeling well in the basement. And so what then happens is they begin to board up the house to protect themselves so that these zombies cannot get into their house. And there's lots of these like back and forth with the rich guy and Ben about what they need to do, stay in the basement, go to the attic. And then as they're you know, kind of quarreling and boarding up the house, they're just kind of taken over by all these zombies trying to get in. And in the process, they try to find keys to get gas because all their cars are broken down. And the two teenagers go to get gas and they end up being blown up by the gasoline because of just... Because he tries to shoot the key off. He tries to shoot the key off of the gasoline tank. He's 17. Poor soul. And then 
they, they just keep coming into the house and Barbara, who's our heroine of a story, just starts kind of just kicking ass and defending herself and getting these people off, of, like just by shooting them because the only way to kill the zombies is to shoot them in the head. She escapes after Ben gets hurt and says, you need to leave. In a gunfight between him and yeah, what is, a, what's his face? Cooper. Yeah. In this whole this process, his official name. in this whole process, the daughter becomes a zombie and kills her mom. And then Barbara leaves and just sees all of these zombies eating the flesh of the teenagers. And then she suddenly quote unquote saved, wakes up in this field where all these humans are and it's almost like they're treating these zombies like they're they're cattle or they're they're using them as sport to like and they're like hanging them from trees and shooting them and she makes this comment that we are them and they are us because there's no kind of line between them she ends up back at the house to see if ben's okay he's a zombie he's killed and then the awful rich guy comes down from the attic he's like hey you're back and so she shoots him in the head and says, oh, I found Blam another out. one, another zombie. Throw him on the pit. And the last images of the movie are this like, kind of pile of zombies being burned and all these humans around them celebrating it. And she's just like got this blank stare. And Yeah, and it, like, it switches between shots of zombies being burned and her just yeah. like determined dead stare yeah, and back yeah, and yeah. forth. And that's yeah. it. That was lovely. That was a good recap. Well done. Well done. Yeah, so... As we've mentioned a little bit before, based on George A. Romero's 1968 Night of the Living Dead, which was criticized upon its initial release because it had so much gore, but then later became a cult classic. So indie film, the original, the 68 version was made for like 114,000 and shot in Pittsburgh because that's where Romero is. First movie ever shot in Pittsburgh. Oh, I didn't know that. See, this is mm-hmm. why I pick things that you know about, so you have to support me in all of this. This is great. <laughs> just flicking my hair. This is great. It's great. And in something that relates, the producers wanted a less bleak ending of the original Night of the Living Dead, but Romero wouldn't do it because, spoiler alert, at the end of the original, Ben actually lives. Everyone else has died, and he comes out of a house having survived, and then he gets shot and killed by these white men who are hunting zombies and just like... Oof, just yeah. Sorry, the imagery, the commentary. I just I don't even have words. It's and like I rewatched the original in preparation for this, and seeing that again, I was like, uh, like you, you, they they telegraph that it's gonna happen, and you're like, I hope it doesn't, but it does, and it just it always bums me out. Yeah, but it's so impactful, and this is why, like Romero says that he wasn't intending to make any social, like racial commentary with that, but. He a lot in a lot of his films, there's things on like community and mob mentality and things like that. And like, you know, as I've learned in my last few years of doing like racial equity, like training and personal learning is like you can't divorce race from any conversation. So for the 1990 versions, we get Tom Savini, you know, he's worked on all of all these films. He actually had to push to make Barbara a badass because in the original, she's just this helpless woman, you know, which is like reminiscent of independent B movies where they're quote unquote running away from this monster who's stalking them. They're just so helpless. Oh, women, we can't help ourselves. I don't like that narrative. And she's a total badass in this. And I think that was part of why I really, I really liked picking this. Not just that a redheaded woman was doing good, but that in a remake we can show women being strong being amazing and still having an amazing film i feel like sometimes people are like oh remakes or you're flipping the you know doing like a gender swap and it's not as good like people who got all like snowflakey about the remake of ghostbusters which was bad ass by the way Disagree. I could not stand that movie. I liked, I li- I liked it, Ashley. I liked no. it. Well, Mm-mm. and I, I think it's interesting because I, I read like old reviews of it, and so many people were like, no, this isn't who Barbara really is. This isn't Barbara. It's And it's just like women can be badasses. It just seemed like this thing of, of like, well, this is how it was, and we're not going to progress beyond this. Mm-hmm. And you don't want her like why would you not want her to be a badass in this? Because it's it's interesting how at the beginning she's catatonic because she's like what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. She doesn't even have a voice, and then suddenly she's just shooting them in the head and and kill, kick an ass. And I I don't know how you cannot fall in love with that. 
Yeah. And I think it's totally spurned on by Ben saying you survived before and you will continue to survive. Yeah. It's just like this, this film is really good. Like Savini originally wanted it to start in black and white. So as like more of an homage and then gradually add in color. But I think a lot of the really great homages to the original in this come from having known it really well because there are so many exact lines that are reused. Like the first line in the 1990 version is they're coming to get you, Barbara. And Johnny's just this this total dick, right? Yeah. And so you kind of you kind of want him to get versions. it, right? Yeah. Johnny's just like mm. he's just not a dick, just kind of like a shitty old no, he was brother. A, he was a dick. <laughs> there, I was like, does anyone have sex with his sister? I don't know. It was just like this Ew, weird. No. It was this weird dynamic that I thought you guys are too old to be <clears throat> speaking to each other like this, and it just kind of creeped me out. So when he was killed i was like fine (laughs) (laughs) but can we talk about that effect where he is killed in the beginning (laughs) oh with his head against the tombstone there's the one that like doesn't look as great but i'm like how do you how do you make that happen really well with like 1990s special effects because it's it's clear it's a mannequin and it's just well you replace the tombstone that's how you do it you don't have the tombstone be made out of actual stone you would probably yeah but actually, so, okay. Tom Savini, why so, didn't you hire a five-year-old Katie Kubert? She could have told you this. <laughs> right? So, Barbara, yes, she is a, is more of a badass. She's She, you know, literally takes the skirt off and puts the pants on in this movie. Mm-hmm. But, and this could be because I'm watching it now where the world is filled with strong, badass female horror protagonists. And so I'm like, was this... Uh, precursor to all of those because the original Barbara is just a victim and useless for most of the movie. She doesn't speak, but when you compare and contrast who she is in this one to who Ben was in the original and to who Ben was now, it's, I almost feel like Ben was more aggro in the 1990 version and in the 1968 version he seemed a little more intelligent and less hairline trigger to get mad and not nothing against tony todd who i love but the original it seemed he was more like let's get on us we're gonna start boarding up the things we don't have that slap moment from the original that i was waiting for which was Massive. So, you know, 1968, race relations being very different and yet very much the same of what we're seeing here. That was a total shock to mm-hmm. to people in 1968. You never you never would have seen that. I mean, you know, just so Graham in the original Ben is coming in. and He's like, is this your house? Are you OK? You know, blah, 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 blah. Is there any wood or nails or whatever in the house? And she's just not saying anything. She doesn't say a goddamn thing. And she starts freaking out and losing it which makes sense you know and then he slaps her Mm. i don't remember if he slaps her and she passes out or if he just slaps her it's not in a mean way it's just like like get up yeah like get it get it together mr green and mrs peacock yes the the opposite of i had to stop her from screaming screaming. (laughs) i had to slap her to start talking yeah but you know, in a mo- to show a black man slapping a white lady in a movie in 1968 where the black man is the protagonist is a big thing. Mm. They did not have this moment in the 1990 remake, but Tony Todd's portrayal of Ben is just a lot more, like, angry. And I get it. Like, he's, he's angry at, what, what's his name, Cooper? What's his face, Cooper? Remember what's his face? Yeah, what's his face, Cooper? Yeah, he's just angry at him, so he just gets mad real, real easy. But then you also have Barbara's character and the way that she's evolved from the original, and she is, you know, she gets mad and she's like, you know, get your shit together. So I don't, I don't know, like seeing the. But the thing is, like, so I totally hear what you're saying, and I see that as well, but I interpret it slightly differently because. With the 1968 version, Ben had to play it a little bit different because Barbara couldn't take control, you know, and like race relations were very different. Whereas within this, he doesn't have to protect her as much. And so the tensions between Ben, a black man, and what's his face, Cooper, a rich, extremely privileged, cisgendered, heterosexual white man. You see that tension so much more between them. And so Barbara, by 
by in this version being more badass and being able to take control, she is attempting to sort of balance out the relationship before that. So, and, and you see that like in the original, there was much more, I don't know if it was much more, but like, it was clearly only a struggle between Ben and what's his face Cooper to Mm -hmm. on who was the leader. And Mm -hmm. then, in the 1990 version, you still see the struggle between Ben and What's-His-Face Cooper on who is the actual leader, but Barbara emerges as a leader within. Like, even while they're fighting, yeah. she's going around yep. and taking care of things. She also, there's a contrast of Barbara with the other, the young teenage girl in in, in the in the house yeah. as well, because, you know, Judy the zombies May. are... Judy May, who's Kate Finneran, Broadway actress. Yay! This is her first her <laughs> Tony Award winner. I was so excited to see her. And then and then I saw her performance, and I was like, okay. She didn't have a lot she to do. She didn't have a lot to do, but they're coming in, and all the teenage girl doing is screaming and screaming. It's like this long sequence of her just <gasps> oh, screaming, God, and it's grating. And then Barbara's like, pull it together. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, listen, like, we have to do... And so it had this nice contrast between between the two of them when she was just screaming doing nothing but nailing <laughs> boards in i was like <laughs> it was it was, was kind like, of amazing ah! i remember really writing funny. a note like at least she's still hammering right like at least she's sure still, she's I, still getting things can done you talk about her haircut i loved it <laughs> barbara's or barbara's gd May's? haircut barbara's oh, haircut. i did love barbara's it was, haircut. It was, i was like single white female stole this this i know is... and can i tell you one one thing that i loved when they are just getting the house ready and just starting to boarding up and there's that one zombie that she killed, the larger one. Yes, when she's hitting it with the poker yeah, in the head. And it's, obviously, it's like kind of like a balloon. But it's just kind of sitting there and then she putt-putts over the hand with... I know. <laughs> like dragging the funny. hand over like with the gun, like putt-putting it over <laughs> to the body. <laughs> I've I never... I really... I totally understood what you meant when you said putt-putting and I never would have mm-hmm. thought to use that to describe it. You have a way with words. You have a way with words, Graham. I did want to ask you guys, what do you think a success... Because we haven't talked about a remake on this series yet and I wanted to know what you guys think a successful remake is. Kitty, I love that you brought that up. I usually hate remakes. A lot of times I'll be like, what the fuck? What is Hollywood doing? They're trying to remake something as if they don't. there aren't any brand new ideas that are going on. But there are remakes that are done really well. And I feel like the ones that I tend to like do pay homage to the original, but obviously remake it in their own way. And so when I was thinking about other good remakes, I was thinking about things like The Fly. Love The Fly. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which Katie, I know ah! you love. The 1970s it's version. All-time all yeah. all favorite. The Birdcage. Uh, absolutely. Right? I love The Birdcage. Little Shop of Horrors. Agreed. The Thing. Maltese Falcon. Love that. 1941 Humphrey Bogart remake. An Affair to Remember, which I watched so much as a kid with my dad, of all people. We would watch that together. Katie, Fright Night. Oh, my God. I really want to get your opinion <laughs> on Fright Night, but Fright Night, both the oh, first. I haven't seen it in forever. So when you think of remakes and things being run down well, what are what, what comes to y'all's minds? So when you mention The Fly, you mentioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's funny because those are both campy 50s, 60s sci-fi movies and then they took the remake in a different direction which it almost seems like they amped it up out of the campiness of the original and that's what kind of makes me love it because I don't like the original fly and I don't like the original invasion of the bystanders just because I think they're kind of boring and they look like they should be on mystery science theater but with this I was trying to think the original night of the living dead did not feel like one of those campy remakes because it was so forward thinking in its male protagonist casting and in the introduction of zombies. So I was trying to think, I'm like, how would you look at a good remake? How would you subvert and innovate and play with people's expectations? Like that first zombie that attacks Barbara and Johnny in the graveyard I was waiting for that guy to come up, the old man to come up, and that's the zombie that attacks them. And then it's just some old guy that's hit on the head. And then the other real zombie, like, pops out of nowhere. So I liked seeing how remakes know what an audience is expecting and how they turn that on its head. But then I'm also thinking, who are, like, remakes for? Are remakes for, like, a core fan? Are they for a casual fan? Are they for, like, a, like a genre fan? 
So, I, I mean, I, I don't really have a que- an answer to this question other than if you're going to do a remake, have something to say, which this one, this one does. Yeah, I feel like sometimes what I've been experiencing recently of remakes is that they're remaking it because they think it's going to be a moneymaker, right? Because the yeah. film industry has changed so much over the last 30 years. Mid-budget films, like $50 million films, just don't get made anymore. Things are even getting made for less than a million, and then you're hoping that you get a great distribution plan and make money off of it. Or films are being made for hundreds of millions of dollars, and they are a like capitalist money-making machine. And like I haven't been paying attention to as much indie film in the last however long, but I just I see less artistry in a lot of the like wide release commercial distribution and more just like a vehicle for money making. And so when I think about the purpose of a remake, I think it absolutely varies by director and who is involved. And I want the ones that are sort of like turning it on its head or adding something new. But I think the ones that just keep hitting me in the face are just the money makers. I mean, look at what's happening with Disney and taking all of their animated movies and making them into these just big budget films. I mean, Aladdin, Mulan, Cinderella. Live action, yeah. Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, which uh, live action, my foot, you know, and it seems like, (laughs) it seems like people aren't. Animated to CGI. Exactly. They're making a ton of money, but they, no one's turning on Lion King, the new one. They're turning, they're going back to the original one. So it's one that kind of takes a life of its own. I mean, who, I mean, you mentioned the birdcage, Ashley, who's, really watching La Caja Fall these days. I mean, the birdcage had Mike Nichols. It had Robin Williams and, and Nathan Lane. I mean, a fucking amazing cast. And they adapted it for an American audience. They adapted it for America in 1996. And so this one adapted it for our world in, in 1990. And it'd be really interesting to see, you know, what would a Night of the Living Dead be? I mean, in 2020, I mean, we're... <laughs> <laughs> We're living it. <laughs> you know, we got Trump supporters being the zombies. But um, I think that's why it's so rare to have a really successful one. You also have the the ones, uh, you know, Little Shop of Horrors and, and Hairspray, which were one genre, and then their remake were musicals. And so they, they played with the genre of it, played with the storyline, and, and adapted it for that type of audience. So look at Broadway. I mean... Everything now is is Mean Girls on Broadway and that was so you know, Crybaby on Broadway. I'm like, why are they making John Waters Crybaby and putting it on Broadway? <laughs> like, that I did see. I just Crybaby's amazing. So when I was watching this film, I kept. I know I was supposed to be analyzing it, New Year, but there's this part of me that just kept thinking about like what I would do in the event of a zombie apocalypse, and so I was thinking about. We live in a first floor apartment, and so I was like, oh, God, we're on the first floor, you know, and it's, you know, it's up like five feet, not quite. It's enough that zombies could still break in. And so I was thinking about, like, what do we have around the apartment to board up our windows? What do we have to do that? And I kept leaning over to Bob and saying, like, we need to make sure that we always have some wood, and we need to make sure that we always have Bob, hammer and Bob, I need, I need wood. <laughs> Bob, give me wood, please. He's like, we always you, need it. He's like, can you be specific? Please? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's my revenge of the nerds laugh. <laughs> but I was saying, like, we need to make sure that the power tools are always charged. And so, like, you start with the hammer. I will start with the power tools. And just trying to think about, like, that. I even got to a point where I was like, listen, guys, I'm not super into guns. As weird as it sounds, like, shooting a gun is can be fun because it's powerful and it's also super fucking terrifying. But there's this little part of me where I was like, I don't think we should have guns. But also, like, should we have a Zombies. gun in the event of a zombie apocalypse? And and then it starts me it starts making me think about when they were replacing the old, the beautiful old doors with those shitty, they're like hollow doors, essentially, so that they're cheaper and anybody could just particle board doors? Yeah, just like particle board or whatever the fuck they are. And I was like, yeah, we need original construction. This is why I love living in like pre-war buildings because <laughs> they've got all that character. And I was like, and it'll fucking save us, you know? <laughs> This is a real concern for you. I mean, I really like craftsmanship. No, no, I meant surviving in a potential zombie. It actually, apocalypse. it really, it really did come to the forefront, and I was like, I gotta start working out more because there is no way that I could run away. Although, you know, with Barbara, she was just kind of walking through 
all of them. But then it made me think about like, what is my apocalypse skill? Right now I feel like my apocalypse skill is like, I can organize things really well. Mine is my charm. <laughs> of course I'm like, it I is. need something. Hey, what's up? <laughs> I don't know what my skill would be. I don't know. I'm pretty crafty. Like I can make stuff out of nothing a lot of the time and you are very crafty you know what your embroidery skills would be really <laughs> helpful for sewing up wounds. stitches yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. you'd, be, you'd be able to mend all of our clothing yes. so we could just reuse it infinitely of course yes yeah i want to talk about the music can i just make okay. a quick comment on the music yes yeah i have a comment about the music as so well. my comment on the music of this film it's it's almost like it's the music from a, a nintendo game it is it but it feels like it's like the music from castlevania it's just this like synthy like (laughs) and it's it's not great it's not great that was the beginning i I totally agree with you it's not great i think that really marks it of the time yeah it definitely here's the thing with this movie is at the beginning i was kind of laughing at it because it was it was a bit of the effects were I mean, obviously fake, but it is a cheap, it's a low budget movie, but it totally drew me in at the end with all the social commentary with it. But the music itself, it was just like, it was like the home screen of an 8-bit video game. (laughs) Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Graham. I don't, I was not a huge fan of the music. In fact, I tried to look up like, who did, who's the composer? Because it also reminded me of this other zombie horror movie called... Dead Alive or Brain Dead by Peter Jackson. Did I make either of you watch that? I was obsessed with it for a while. No, I just remember that Peter Jackson movie with Kate Winslet. Heavenly Creatures? Yeah. Yeah, that was a good one too. Yeah. So it it reminds me of Dead Alive, which if any of our listeners have heard, it was made around the same time. It it came out in 92. So it's got the exact same things. I keep listening to it. I'm like, oh, it's screwing up my zombie subgenre films i completely ignore the music <laughs> like i'm sure i realized it while it was happening but after it was over like just blank slate i was like oh i don't even i don't even know what you're talking about there were certain things that i think just like in any horror film like and maybe it's part of my coping mechanism to not get too scared there were certain things where i wanted to be like what are you doing don't do that <laughs> which i think is also the hallmark of a good film like it gets you so into it you're you're attempting to talk to the characters and to help guide them because you're actually invested in it enough but the point when the like teenage boy who is it tommy or something is that his name yeah uh, who, who, looked, who, uh, who looked 37 Yes, definitely looked older. What really takes me out of a film is when it violates the rules that it has set up, right? So we learn that he's there because he was coming to check up on his cousin and his uncle, his uncle who recently had died, which is who Barbara killed with the poker. And then his cousin, you know, decided to take himself out of the game, so to speak. But I was like, okay, so clearly... You know that he has a gas tank. You seem to work with, like, some sort of, like, farming equipment. You're familiar with guns and everything else. And I was like, would he have been so terrified that he would have thought shooting the lock off of a gas tank would have been a good idea? I mean, beautiful effect. Like, the explosion. It was cool. Gorgeous. It was, it was super cool. cool. I felt so but bad for like, the girlfriend. Mm. Um, I felt yeah. really bad. Yeah, as soon as I saw that explosion, I was like, oh, man, that yeah. sucks. I like how a lot of the horror was in the daytime. Mm, like mm. that was surprising to me, especially the opening. It's it's like this is all happening as opposed to two AM. It's happening in broad daylight and and that isn't something I feel like you normally see in a lot of horror films. But it it plays on our fear of when there is the dark and the unknown, it it's almost easier to be scared of things because you can't see or you can't tell or you can't defend yourself. But to be terrified in the daylight or in something that is supposed to be innocuous, right? Like if they had gotten holed up at a castle, you would have been like, or something very like Gothic and Victorian. Mm-hmm. You would have said, yes, of course this is. Yeah. But this is just any mm-hmm. house or farmhouse and it's all happening during the day. I was talking to somebody about the original Halloween And how that was so terrifying, not because of Michael Myers, but because it's happening in 
just a suburb, just any suburb setting, you know, this like place where you're supposed to be quote unquote safe and then terror is being... That's where all in- the bad shit happens is in the yeah. suburbs. Well, yeah, but it's like injecting this terror into something that the initial thought is that it is not, mm-hmm. you know? In regards to the makeup and whatnot, they didn't want it to be super gory because they wanted it to be so similar to the original. So I was surprised to see that it- they weren't like super scary looking. I mean, they had hollowed out eyes and, and a bit of makeup, but it wasn't super super gory and i think it's interesting that 1990 after a decade of slasher picks and gore and all this stuff they dialed it down i was actually really disappointed that they cut away to the death of the mom Mm -hmm. helen and i know it was like a callback seeing the blood on the trowel because in the original the daughter kills the mom with a with a trowel but i was like okay so this is one of your quote-unquote main characters and you don't get to see their deaths but you get to see two naked butts which i was a big fan of yeah there's a lady naked butt and then my and the dude I at think, the beginning where like he's coming out of the autopsy zombie yeah he's coming out of his funeral clothes and they're actually mm-hmm. cut up the back that zombie was my favorite because you see the autopsy yep. scars mm-hmm. and stitches on him and when I was looking at the the effects in this movie, and Graham, you were you were right. They are dialed down, coming out of a decade or two decades where everything was dialed the fuck up. So seeing everything kind of dialed back was interesting slash a little disappointing. There's that quick little montage of like zombies eating stuff after the explosion, and there was one guy with like a knife sticking out of his chest, and I was like, oh, that's cool. But the most disappointing thing to me was. The reveal of the brother. Oh. The original 1968 reveal that the brother turned into a zombie was such a big, like, punch moment that I did not see coming. Because you also have the original actor as a live, quote-unquote, live zombie. And you get Barbara's reaction. In this one, he's just a, first of all, a silicone reproduction body. Yeah. So it's hard to tell it's even him. But those so driving viewers, gloves. <laughs> well, viewers might take a second to be like, who the fuck is this? Who the fuck are these guys? And you don't get that reaction as if you had used the actor and had that confrontation moment between Barbara and the reanimated Johnny. And those particular effects... So before they invented the current silicone they have now, they had opaque silicone, which made it look less real. But silicone has evolved over the past you know, 20, 30 years to look much, much better. So the stuff doesn't look as fake. But when I saw all the bodies in the back, I was like, oh, all right. I think, I think the reason this film failed is because one, the reviews weren't great. Oh, was it a failure? I meant to yeah, ask. It was a failure. I think because it wasn't a hugely gory horror film, like people had been used to seeing, like you make hmm. a remake you want it to be like more sensationalized. You want it to be over the top. This wasn't. And that's, yeah. I think, why this film ended up performing pretty poorly. You know, $6 million. I mean, if you, if you like, oh, a new yeah. Night of Living Dead. Yes, awesome. Woo, wait. There's not a lot of gore. What? It's basically just almost a, I mean, a line for line remake, I guess. And people weren't ready to see somebody like Barbara be so powerful in this because sexism <laughs> but I mean, in the years since though i mean we're talking about it in 2020 i think in the years since it's it's attained more of a, an appreciation i do think the original was more in my opinion at least more gory than this remake mm. which is kind of strange because there of course were more effects but the black and white nature and that that, that zombie just that's at the top of the stairs in the original with like it, it just looks so scary and it looks like it's like it sticks with you. There were no zombies in this one that stuck with me as like, oh, this is something I'm going to remember. I'm only going to remember because we're talking about it. I was it. expecting their mom to show up from the grave. Yeah, too. that would have like, been cool. Also, the mom was like clearly 95. Like, how old was that mom? <laughs> like, <laughs> So the first version of this was actually given an X rating because they had all these like headshots and things of zombies and there was an exploding zombie. And so they had to dial it back. And I wonder if this is another instance of like the MPAA fucking up storytelling and being like, no, you have to do this. Or if it's something, you know, it was given this X rating and now producers are like, listen, we don't have to go through this again. So really dial it back. 
and then it didn't have that. And like, there actually was supposed to be an instance of a barber, like seeing her mom and sort of doing like a, a crossfade oh, to her being alive and then killing her. But there, there were a few things cut out and it seems like for y'all that really took, that really took away from the film for you. It made it harder for you to see it like as successful. Am I, I, I think that correctly? I, I actually think this movie ended up being successful for me. I think especially because of the final 10 minutes of it, but I do know that, that it just didn't have like a big following. I mean, the director okay. was like only 40% of my vision is in this movie. And yeah. Because a lot of people were just, you know, taking over what he was doing. Messing with it. Yeah. And this is why filmmaking, it's hard as an artist to realize your full vision because there are so many folks who are involved in the making of it. Even when you have a great team who's helping your vision happen, you have producers, you have marketers, you have, you know, MPAA for ratings, and that can really manipulate what you're doing. And, you know, you can start out with this great, like, creator's intent and that gets manipulated, but also how the audience experiences your art and the experiences they bring into it will really take away from, you know, like that authorial or creator intent versus reader or, you know, consumer's experience of it. I think in the first one, there's such a strong racial message around that, just especially given the ending. And I'm curious to see what y'all thought a little bit more. Like when I was first watching it, I was like, what? Barbara's glasses are being pulled off. Doesn't she need those to see as somebody who like, I always needed my glasses to see. Right. And I was like, wait, is this more a commentary of like the rose colored glasses of life are being ripped off of her. And this, this is marking such a before and after. And like, you know, when she's kind of stumbling around before she meets Ben, like it's like her vision is adjusting. And then all of a sudden when she's a badass, it's like, she can see clearly about Hmm. what's going on and what the world is really like. And before she was in this, sheltered privileged place i mean i think there are also very clear messages that like we do better as community and working together even though we can have differences but clearly it was the divisions that ended up with ben dying i was so bummed to see that ben turned into a zombie i was just i was very sad i mean i have not seen the original but i think the lynching i mean that that part is is what I have remembered from this. Yeah. And I think it just goes to show in 22 years between the first and the remake, nothing's changed. Yeah. And I don't know. And it's also interesting. Not all the zombies were white. Mm-hmm. And, and in the beginning they were all men and they were all men coming after this woman, which I thought was, was oh, that's telling, interesting. you know, it's yeah. like these men are stalking this woman. And, you didn't see like women zombies until later in the movie, I think. Yeah, that's correct. That's you did. We don't. We yeah. don't see them initially. What we see yeah. are white men who have have turned into zombies, and it it almost like if we separate from the from the origins of zombies, which come from Haitian culture and Afro culture. When I was thinking about zombies and seeing that there were so many who were men or white men, I was like, is there a way that I can? make the analysis that zombieism is also correlated with white supremacy. And so we're all affected by white supremacy and we can all carry it out, but that it was leading with that. I highly recommend there's a article by the Hollywood reporter who does just a much, much better job than I am doing to explain just more of the racial and social commentary about what's going on. I think it's, we're still talking about it. You know, we're still thinking about and analyzing it. And as much as it may be more overt, like we strung up these zombies, we are using zombies for this entertainment, which they're gambling and messing around. It's still like you're saying, so many things have still not changed in the 20 years since this film came out. The more things change, the more they stay the same. We still haven't gotten to the root and like changing it like it's it's yeah. so insidious i i found myself at the end like feeling bad for the zombies <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't i just the whole part and the fact that maybe the people that were coming to rescue and coming to you know corral the zombies and, and burn them and, and and get rid of them like just who they what they were being portrayed as just i don't know it just 
Maybe feel bad for the survivors. It doesn't look like either world. Yeah, no, yeah. Either world you know, is that's... ideal. And then, you know, and you mentioned, Katie, that the director was a Vietnam photographer. Yeah. And, you know, at the end, you have these snapshots of, of photos. You have this, yeah. you see a photographer running around and taking photos. It's almost like he's using that in these last moments of the movie. I would love to think that's true. I mean, it's having seen the original, it's similar to oh, the it original is? ending. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. But I I think that could be, you know, I'm sure Savini used that original, you know, he's talked in the past about how his time in Vietnam and what the stories he was telling through photography affected his, his later work. So I'm sure that had something to do with yeah. it, but I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of different ways to interpret this based on experience. And I mean, of course, the, the three of us here are white people talking about it from our own experience, but it could be vastly different for someone else. You know, like I've said, I like films that make me think and or feel something. And so for me, I would definitely go like double feature again and rewatch these and then like go read more and do more analysis. And I actually found like someone's thesis that was like 79 pages long on it. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm gonna go read that. But <laughs> what about you two? I am not. How do you, how would you... Do you want to grade this? Where do you stand on it? Would you watch it again? Tell me tell me your thoughts. Tell me your feels. I was surprised that I liked it as much as I did, considering my track record with horror. Yay, and, Graham likes yay. a horror movie! And, uh, and yes. Ashley, you win the star. <laughs> Unlike last week, this is a well-made movie. <laughs> but I think I think the addition of the social commentary and having you really think about what things are symbolizing, put it to a new dimension that, that I really liked and it makes me really, really want to watch the original and then kind of dive into, I mean, there's Dawn of the Dead, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's the one that is, takes place at a mall and it's a commentary on American consumerism. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I want to watch that. Like, that could be really fun. So, yeah, this definitely makes me want to see more of more of this. Well, I would say definitely stick with the Romero ones because... Romero sticks with social commentary. So he uses a lot of his films to make commentary on consumerism or race or whatever. So that's a Romero thing. Russo is kind of more farcical and ridiculous. So they both have amazing merits because both have made wonderful films. But the reason I think maybe people are more familiar with Romero is because his commentary kind of hits on a deeper level while Russo's is more, haha, this is ridiculous. But I don't know if I would rewatch this. I mean, first of all, when I saw Tony Todd was in it, I love Tony Todd. And that second he pops out of the car with the hook tire iron, I was like, fuck yeah, Candyman. <laughs> and this came out two years before Candyman. So I was pumped to see that, but I don't, I think my zombie intake, I have so many things that I love, whether I love Shaun the Dead or if I want to watch the original or if I want to, you know, dive into the other Romeros or if I want to rewatch Return of the Living Dead, I would probably watch those first or I would read the litany of zombie books that are out there or read, you know, the wonderful collection of zombie comics that exist right now. I don't know if I would pop this back in because it mainly makes me just want to watch other zombie stuff that I already love. Okay, it's legit. All right, well, Graham, would you like to preview us for next week's theme? What's coming (gasps) up? Yes, next week! Y'all, we finished theme two! And now for something completely different. (laughs) Completely different. So, you know, first of all, wait. What? Happy Halloween, everybody. Oh, yes. Happy, Happy Halloween. Halloween. Which safe. is on a Saturday, full moon, and daylight savings time. Yes, so it's everyone, just a wild please, night. Please be safe. and Please just, be safe and careful. Just get some candy at home. At a, get some candy and just eat it all by yourself at home. I already bought you know? my skeleton onesie. <laughs> I'm just going to sit around uh, the house just and wear it. Stay at home. Stay Even at if home. you're at home, wear a mask. Don't yes. go trick-or-treating. Don't go to parties. God damn it. The second wave is coming. (laughs) Stay at home and be responsible. And, and, and the election's treat, coming. And, and the, the election's, election's coming, coming. goddammit. The, so, the real horror. So here's the thing. This, our next episode's going to be after the election results. So hopefully America is still standing. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so we're moving into a trio of politically centered movies. We're getting political here. And 
my choice is one of the best comedies of the 90s. It's Clueless meets All the President's Men. Oh, dear God. Criminally underappreciated when it was released. It is the brilliant. It is the hilarious. It is the wonderful dick. With Yay! Michelle Williams, Kirsten Dunst in a fantastic Dan Hedaya. I am so excited to revisit it. I love dick. So <laughs> Who doesn't? There's going to be a lot of those. Who doesn't jokes. love dick? There's going to be a lot of dumb jokes like that next week. So I hope everyone's ready for it. Oh, I can't wait. I remember seeing this cover in our, our movie rental store, but I never, I don't think we ever saw uh, it. So I, I can't wait. So it's Katie, such, you've, you've, you've not seen it. So it's no. your first time. Yeah, new to me. So excited to talk about it. It's wonderful. And, you know, y'all, if you got questions or comments, just, you know, send them our way at, on Instagram or, or Twitter. Um, yeah, follow us Follow us on all the nonsense. All the nonsense. Uh, our, our Instagram is let me intro you pod. Yes. And our Twitter is let me intro you. There you go. There so go. make sure Good to follow job. us. Send us some, send us some DMs. <laughs> <laughs> Slide in our DMs to talk about dick. <laughs> We're yes, 36. Please. We're 36. <laughs> I have another I have another couple weeks, not yet. But by the time this episode, by the time this episode airs, you will have joined your your us in, in 36 dumps. So. I know. Club 36. So 36. All right, well, yay. Ashley, thanks so much. That was such a great conversation. Yeah, this was a great one. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And Katie, now you know the formula for getting us to love horror is social commentary. Yes. So. Oh, that's a lot of work. And I just gr- want some great haircuts. Like, gore. Great haircuts. <laughs> great haircuts. Well, I'll see. Redhead. I'll see what I can do for our female protagonist. Yes. All right, y'all. All right. All right. See y'all next week. Bye. Thanks Bye. for joining Bye. us. Bye. Bye. Let Me Introduce You is a podcast hosted by Graham Veth, Katie Kubert, and Ashley Crone. Music by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Make sure to follow the Let Me Introduce You podcast on Instagram at Let Me Intro You Pod and on Twitter at Let Me Intro You.